who cares really about Bible trivia? I'm talking about this grammar to be able to see, construct, understand, perceive, and negotiate one's life in the world. When they think about the problem of immigration, do they think first and foremost as Christians of texts in the Bible that have to do with immigration? That's what I think they should be doing, not recapitulating what their favorite pundit or political party says, but rather wrestling with what it means for Ruth to be a Moabite widow immigrant, or what does it mean to Leviticus to care for the immigrant and provide food for them and love them like you love yourself. Hello, Onscript listeners. This is Matt Lynch based here in the UK, I'm sitting down in a place called Ashburnham in East Sussex. Oh man, it's so beautiful here. It's, a, it's like a, so the place where I work is called Westminster Theological Center. And we have hubs all around the country in the UK. And one of the hubs is down in a place called Ashburnham Place in East Sussex. And it is gorgeous down here right now. It was a sunny day and we were talking about the book of Job. Not that those two things are related at all. In fact, probably not. But uh, the Ashburnham place has, it's like a farm and a huge old estate, beautiful grounds, but they've, they've converted it not just into a big conference center, but uh, sustainable farming, all these interesting things. So I was just out with the sheep and pheasants and I'm feeling very connected to nature. So I just thought I'd share that with you. Uh, in this episode, we've got Brent Strawn, and man, I just loved talking with him. And Brent is someone who means a lot to me, and I, I really respect his work and him as a person. So, sorry, I have a cold. My voice is funny. The, his book, The Old Testament is Dying, is really important, and I'm going to assign it in my classes. So I highly recommend it to you, commend it to you. Uh, if you're a lecturer, to use it in your classes. Uh, if you're a student, to go buy it and read it. Uh, or anyone else. Like This is, this is really important because if you care about the place of the Old Testament in the church, it's worth a listen. I, I also just wanted to say that if you would like to become our biggest donor, you can go on over to our website, onscript.study, and give 21 pounds, and you will outdo my friend Doug who the other day uh, I said pounds tonight $21 and you will out, outdo my friend Doug who gave $20 the other day because he wanted to become our biggest donor and he's a generous guy so shout out to Doug thank you for that donation that's our that's our biggest one to date and it's also our second one ever <laughs> so I don't know why I keep saying it but but I'm you know I'm just hoping that someone will help us make this financially sustainable. Um, just like the, f- the sustainable farm I'm at. And also, if you want to give us a, a rating on iTunes, that would mean the world to us. Absolutely the world. And if you if you do that, uh, you just go on over there and say something positive, and then someone who comes and looks at iTunes will say, hey, those guys look like they're having fun. Look at that positive review. This is amazing. And they'll want to listen and tell their aunties and uncles about it. So that's our hope. Spread the good news if you think it's good news. If you think it's bad news, then why are you listening? 
maybe maybe turn it off. You know, I'm not trying to get confrontational, but uh, you just need to examine your 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 motives. Okay, uh, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did hosting it. Beekner writes these words from a friend of his. I shall go to my grave, feeling that Christian thought is a dead language, one that feeds many living ones, to be sure, one that still sets these vibrating with echoes and undertones, but which I no more use overtly than I would speak Latin. I suppose he is right, Beekner writes, more right than wrong, anyway. If the language that clothes Christianity is not dead, it is, at least for many, dying. And what is really surprising, I suppose, is that it has lasted as long as it has. If the language that clothes Christianity is dying, what can we say of the less often used Old Testament? With us today to talk about the Old Testament's near-critical condition is Brent Strawn, author of The Old Testament is Dying, a Diagnosis and Recommended Treatment, published by Baker Academic. Brent, welcome to OnScript. Thanks a lot for having me. Brent is professor of Old Testament at Candler School of Theology at Emory University and is also the author of What is Stronger Than a Lion, a book on Leonine imagery in the Hebrew Bible in Ancient Near East, and is the editor of quite a few books, including the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible and Law, which was the winner of the Dartmouth Medal from the American Library Association for Best Reference Work. Way to go, Brent. Thank you. <laughs> Brent is also the author and or editor of countless other articles and books on the Old Testament and ancient Near East, but is perhaps best known for his laugh. <laughs> I, I was hoping to cue it there. And, yes. And his, <laughs> and his concern for people. So Brent, help me understand the genesis of this book, The Old Testament is Dying. Well, the idea for the book kind of emerged, I think, uh, be, as the kind of confluence of two factors. One was I was driving in every day, or not every day, but every couple days to teach this course I was uh, responsible for at my institution, Introduction to Old Testament. It was a year-long course, met twice a week. So on those days when I was driving in to teach that introductory course, I also happened to be listening to some uh, material on tape, uh, on uh, CD. On what? Oh, I was going to say, I didn't know what a tape is. Yeah, tape, exactly. Uh, not not tape. The, a CD, a, a course on, on CD by John McWhorter, um, who's a linguist. And uh, I was listening to, to his course on uh, the story of human language. And I had taken a lot of language courses as a student, of course, but I'd never taken a pure linguistics course. And so this was an interesting thing to listen to. And as I listened to his lectures, I was particularly fascinated with the stuff on language contact and language uh, life cycle, language growth and change and decline and death. And suddenly a light kind of went on in my head as I was listening to McWhorter lecture and I was driving into lecture on the Old Testament that what I was teaching my students was a kind of language as well because they weren't familiar with it. They didn't know it. They couldn't speak it. And they had very little fluency in it. 
And so um, I could think about linguistics as a way to help them learn it and restructure my pedagogy accordingly. But also it kind of drilled home this existential point that I'd felt for a long time but couldn't quite articulate. And that was that the Old Testament, if it is like a language, it is in uh, decline and suffering signs of morbidity. So it was really those two factors, listening to McWhorter lecture and thinking about my class and uh, introductory students to the Old Testament that kind of gave birth to this idea in this book. Yeah, Brent, I have to say that when when I read this book, per, perhaps more than any other book I've read de- recently, this one really kind of touched something in me in a very personal way. Uh, and when I first saw the title of the book, I knew that I wanted to interview you because I like you and I had you in class and I know you'd be a, a great person to interview. Uh, and but when I saw the title, I thought, well, maybe that's a little bit clickbaity. It's a it's a catchy title. The Old Testament is dying. <laughs> yeah. But but when I when I read the book, I realized that you were actually serious about about this idea that the Old Testament is dying, uh, and, it, and it sort of stirred up a, what I would call an adrenalized sadness, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because, because yeah. I was I was, and it's it's comparable to maybe the sort of sense of urgency that you'd feel around an endangered species. My, my son right now is, is concerned yeah. with the, the endangered uh, the cheetah. And so yeah. this has been on my mind a lot, yeah. uh, but there's also a sadness with that because this is, mm-hmm. this is uh, so important, but yet it's in decline and, and almost lost in, in many circles. So first of all, some people are going to need convincing that the old Testament is actually dying because right. There are so many versions of the Bible being printed, and there are so many conferences around the study of the Bible. Mm -hmm. There are Mm -hmm. Bible studies happening all over the place. And so on what basis can you claim that the Old Testament is dying? Yeah, thanks. I I am glad you got that feeling from reading the book. I mean, I don't want to make anyone sad, but but it, it at least shows that I communicated my own uh, as you put it, quite lovely uh, phrase, adrenalized sadness that that when anything precious is lost or potentially lost, it's a great tragedy. This is true of all human languages or species, animal species, and so forth. But even more so, it, it would seem uh, for faith, and uh, if we lose something precious from Christian faith or from Christian scripture, so it does. Uh, it's a sadness that motivates me, or should motivate me, and I. I talk about this briefly in the book that I would love to be proven wrong. In fact, in some ways it might be my greatest prayer to be proven wrong, but so far those prayers have not been answered and that the decline of the Old Testament is not something I celebrate, but rather it constitutes my greatest sadness. Um, And you're right too, that that not all have been convinced about this thesis when I've uh, talked about it in various uh, places over the past few years. I've met some resistance uh, because people, I think, don't want this to be true. Um, and I think some who don't want it to be true, it's mostly wishful thinking on their part. It's not actually a grappling with the data that I present, some of which is semi-empirical, but most of which is not because, you know, this is not, we don't, you know, we're not working in a field that deals extensively with empirical data, but it's at least anecdotal and based on um, a good bit of analysis and, and argumentation. So the book actually outlines no less than seven 
instances where I try to demonstrate the decline of the Old Testament, both within Christian circles and outside Christian circles, uh, in more liturgical contexts and in secular contexts, uh, in small settings uh, and huge arenas of megachurches. And so these include things like the U.S. Religious uh, Literacy or Knowledge Survey that was conducted, um, but also includes analysis of hymnody uh, among mainline hymn books. It includes analysis of the Revised Common Lectionary, a series of best sermon series, three series devoted to best sermons in the 20th century. Um, those four are what I call initial testing of the Old Testament, and those each show that the patient that is the Old Testament is in decline and suffering from some sort of pathology. And uh, that pathology or malady is probably not only you know, uh, uh, demonstrated uh, symptomatically by those four tests, but actually is the result of poor performance in those areas. The book goes on then to talk about how the Old Testament is also in serious straits when it comes to things like the New Atheism and discourse about the Bible in uh, ah religious discourse and in larger contexts like the prosperity gospel. So people don't, you're right, not all will, will agree with the, the diagnosis, but I think if they read the book, they'll be a little more convinced that there's something behind it, and it's not just me, uh, as you say, looking for clicks uh, on, the, uh, on the screen. <laughs> so I suppose in order to feel the weight of the Old Testament's loss, uh, we, we have to first be convinced of its value, which puts you in a kind of chicken and egg uh, si situation yeah. or catch-22. Yeah. Um, but could you take us back to the early Christian church and explain why very early on, and you talk about this in the book, but I'd love for listeners to hear it, why Christians decided to retain the Hebrew scriptures as scripture? What were some of the motivating factors? Why did they feel like they could not cut themselves off from this now that they had Christ? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing you'd start with is is a kind of historical, but, but also religious continuity between the early church and early Judaism, and then beyond that, back in, into ancient Israel that preceded that, that the early Christian community was constituted at the start entirely and exclusively of Jewish um, individuals. And so their scripture was the uh, Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, as Christians call it now. And so there was uh, no forced attempt to maintain. It was just part and parcel. This was our sacred scripture. And so, of course, we look to it. The, the coming of Christ and the Christ event then provided a kind of crisis for early Christians to think through uh, especially early Jews uh, who were part of that movement, but, but also later Christians as well, that how does Jesus fit into this story of Israel that we have and the, the text that we have about the God of Israel and God's faithfulness to us? And uh, the early Christian community was convinced that uh, Jesus was in continuity with, not, not outside the bounds of or completely novel or, you know, uh, altogether uh, unexpected, but rather the fulfillment or the fruition of so much that God had promised in uh, earlier times. So that maintaining the Old Testament is not quite the right word, but if we use that word, 
the 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 reason to to continue to hold those texts sacred was because um, the God behind the acts in Israel and the acts in Christ was in fact the same, and therefore the the continuity is a testimony to the faithfulness of this God and the identity of this God. So that's I think the the a primary thing that kind of historical but more than that it's not just historical that the early Christians were Jews but but it's really this existential religious theological connection that also the early Christians who were Gentiles uh, were familiar with and grafted into to use Paul's language in Romans but the further you go away the further it becomes exclusively Gentile the more problems you have I think in in trying to figure that out because for those who are not native to the language of the Old Testament in Israel, this is acquiring a second language, and it's uh, and they and they don't necessarily get it, and they don't necessarily get it fluently, and that becomes a problem. Yeah, it's interesting, um, and we'll get to the linguistic metaphor a little bit more in a minute. But uh, how you put that was probably intentional on your part, but I just want to highlight it that you you started out by saying that the early Jewish community asks the question, how did Jesus fit into the story of Israel? So in that sense, the story of Israel was the primary baseline. And then the question was, how does Jesus fit into that? And then later Christians had to grapple with the question, how does the Old Testament fit into our understanding of Jesus? Is that kind of how you see the, the progression yeah. there? Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, uh, I quote Robert Jensen's uh, kind of lovely phrasing on this. I'm not going to get it quite right, I don't think, at least verbatim. But he says it's not that the early church made room for the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament made room for the early church. And I think that's a helpful way to think about it. And it's exactly the opposite way that the average Christian, I think, thinks about it now. So so then in the early church, what were some of the the ways that, that Christians what are some of the obstacles Christians had to overcome in, in order to think about the, the role of the, the Old Testament and its, and its critical importance? Well, you know, I don't think, I suppose some of the problems that we think of now are not, in my judgment, really pronounced in the New Testament itself. Um, you, start, you start encountering some of them in the post-New Testament material. Uh, strong, say, super strong supersessionism, this epistle of Barnabas or whatever, like this sort of stuff. Um, but, but I think that the um, maybe the most pr difficult wrestling with some of this is found in the book of Hebrews, um, because Hebrews really does come close, closest to that sort of thing in the New Testament. Uh, but even there, it's just striking to me. Um, even there, Hebrews constantly makes its points with reference to the Old Testament. And even if Christ is superior, as um, Hebrews asserts, it's all done with reference to Moses. And Moses is not denigrated and put away forever. Moses was faithful as a servant of God's house, you know, but Christ was the high priest and so forth. So I think Hebrews comes close to the wrestling with some of the things that we, we struggle with or that contemporary Christians struggle with vis-a-vis -vis the Old Testament. But the... Um, but I think in, in terms of before that, in the New Testament itself, the struggles are, are not really very pronounced, um, other than perhaps the importance of temple, the importance of priesthood, the importance of sacrifice. Those things have to be negotiated after the destruction of the temple and the disestablishment of sacrificial and priestly system. But that was true of Judaism, too. They had to negotiate that as well.
Yeah, and I think it always messes with uh, Christians' minds when we start thinking about the fact that Jewish followers of Jesus kept going to the temple after yeah. uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, that's right. It was fascinating to me. Yeah, and Paul <laughs> and still does his, his sacrifice and takes yeah. his vows and everything else. It's, it's, so there's there's that continuity with, and, and that's easily somehow missed. And I think it's missed nowadays because people just don't know their New Testaments very well. I mean, the, the kinds of concerns that people raise with me in class or in churches or whatever really reflect a naivete and ignorance about the New Testament text. They have, they have no real sense of the deep dependence of the New Testament in every nook and cranny uh, yeah. on the Old Testament. Yeah, so another idea that you, you come to at the end of the book, it, by, by reference to Brevard Childs, is the idea of the Old Testament's discrete witness. Could you, first of all, just explain that phrase and, and its significance uh, for... Yeah, and I have to say, I, I think I understand what Child is saying there, but of course he has a, a, neck, a second move beyond just the discrete witness of the Testament. But I also struggle with it a little bit um, and have thought about it and kind of wrestled with it, I think, in various ways over my career and, and still do. But I think what Child means is the discrete witness of the Old Testament means that the Old Testament does, in fact, have a word to say, a witness, a testimony to offer about God to the church, even, and the world that is independent of its relationship to the New Testament. It's not solely looking forward to the Old Testament. It's not somehow incomplete uh, without the New Testament, but it actually does have these important words to say and, and testimonies to make about God in and of its own uh, sort and and you know in its own right is the kind of language people often use or give the Old Testament its 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 own say that that sort of thing John Golden Gay does this good bit in his uh, Old Testament theology works um, but I think that's what that's what discrete witness means and that's an important piece but there's also of course other things to say after that. Hmm. So let's uh, talk about your uh, linguistic metaphor. Uh, a little bit more, because you use that metaphor to describe the Old Testament's death, that the church has, has certainly lost its fluency in speaking the Old Testament. You describe that as how you understand your task as a teacher, is giving people that fluency again, or helping them move toward fluency. Uh, but you also say that at best, the church, in many respects, speaks a pigeonized form of Old Testament. So we were able to to quote bits from Psalm 23, we're able to pull out portions of Isaiah 53, and let's not forget Jeremiah 29:11. Yes, yes. <laughs> I know course. the plans I have for you. Amen. Brent, <laughs> their plans uh, to prosper you, Matt. Not yeah, for harm. <laughs> I know, I know. And and we, we could probably add the prayer of Jabez in, in there now. Yes, yes. Let's do that. But so, could you explain the first the idea of the Bible as a language and what you mean and don't mean by that and how you're using this idea of a pigeonized form of the language and eventually uh, creolized forms of Old Testament language. Sure, sure. So for me, there's various ways to understand the the, the idea or the analogy that, that the Old Testament is a language or like a language. But the best one is that the old, I think, is that and the way I try to use it is that the Old Testament is, is, a, is a way 
a kind of grammar for perceiving, understanding, uh, and negotiating the world. Um, and in this way, it's no different than any other sort of thing that we might look to to orient our lives or when I so people might have grammars of patriotism or grammars of familial uh, relationship or types of embodiment or whatever that, that ha helps them see, navigate, uh, understand, uh, perceive the world. <clears throat> and that's how I mean the Old Testament could be such a grammar. In that sense, it's not abnormal for it to function that way because all sorts of literature function that sort of way, commending a kind of life to us that we'll either adopt or reject. People narrate their lives oftentimes nowadays or can through binge watching Netflix or whatnot. They can kind of narrate their lives through episodes of their favorite shows or talk about characters. There was a time though when people could do this with the Bible and um, and uh, I think what I'm saying is that there's a great loss when we can't anymore because when particular things arise that are in fact uh, religious um, issues uh, people are at a complete loss to be able to address them in a religiously profound and dexterous way. Instead, it's a, again, it's a sort of a baby talk version um, and, a, and, and actually a retreat from biblical language or even larger Christian faith language to just what I happen to think because I was raised in you know X, Y, or Z or because I had a friend who said this to me once or because I saw that on TV or because my favorite political pundit said, that. So the uh, grammar then, the, the Old Testament can be like a, a grammar, a way of perceiving and understanding the world. And if that's if it's like a language in that way, then what linguists tell us is that languages come in contact with other languages and they're changed in the process. This is just entirely normal and to be expected. But sometimes languages come into kind of violent contact. Um, and the violence isn't always military, it could be economic or whatever, but with a with a dominant party over a, a lesser powerful party. And the language uh, that's often then spoken between those two unequal parties is called a pidgin. It's a created language on the basis of those two languages to just facilitate the bare minimum of dialogue. Uh, and they're very, very greatly reduced languages then. Uh, Rusinorsk is a fam famous example between Russian and Norwegian, and Rusinorsk only had 200 words to the entire language and so of course it's not as rich as Russian and like Dostoevsky and you know my joke about Dostoevsky is he's got more than 200 words in his name you know <laughs> <So> <laughs> you yeah. couldn't write Dostoevsky's novels in Rusinorsk it would be yeah. a travesty so yeah. great yeah great it's like reduction. it's kind of like the 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 shopkeeper language in Jerusalem so so they yeah you, you walk by the shop and they say you smell you need a new t-shirt you know, like it's <laughs> that's exactly. one of the phrases that but they actually heard a lot. But they've they've got like a, about two hundred words that they can yeah, yeah. use to facilitate totally. that transaction, which is that's fine it. for that. That's it. Rusa North kept one preposition. I mean, one preposition to do all the work of every preposition that you can think of. I mean, inside, <laughs> outside, one preposition does the work of both both of those words. So the the pigeons are these greatly reduced um, languages and. Uh, and I, I fear that what, ha well, what happens in, in language decline and language death is that they revert to pigeonized forms because the people who speak the language fluently have died. And all that are left are a second generation or a third generation that only have little bits and pieces of a language. Uh, and they can only say one or two words. Maybe they can say a sentence. 
but that's ad I mean that's not even a pidgin language anymore that's that's just a phrase but but that kind of process linguists describe as repigeonization it's a part of language decline and death and so again in insofar as Christians can only speak little bits and pieces what you've got is basically you know incontrovertible evidence that these people have no linguistic fluency in the larger grammar of scripture uh, and for me uh, as a Christian theologian the grammar of scripture is the primary grammar for the grammar of faith uh, that everything in Christian faith goes back in some fundamental way hangs on in crucial ways scripture so that if the uh, Old Testament and New Testament are in decline and I make the case that they're both related if the Old Testament dies the New Testament's not far behind if that's in decline then the whole Christian faith the whole kit and caboodle is is threatened and um, that's that's what adrenalizes my sadness. Yeah, I think, so you have a situation now, as you put it in, I can't remember which chapter, but you talk about, it, it's the equivalent of, of Christians speaking to one another in phrases like, go car, mommy, <laughs> mommy, come home. Yes, and, and, that's, and, right. and that's, that's entirely appropriate when you're dealing with babies Mm -hmm. or yeah. brand new Christians, you kind of Noah right. righteous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. That's David right. kill Goliath. <laughs> yes. Samson but, strong. Yeah, yeah uh -huh. Samson strong. But you have to move on from there. And the and the, yeah. the problem is when with your kind of calendar flip uh, one verse a day approach, we, we don't right. move beyond that pigeonized right. form of the language, right? Right, that's exactly right. And so we're then at a loss to really uh, effectively assess, let alone refute, brilliant people who are critics of scripture or of Christian faith. I mean, here the new atheists um, are very important to consider. They're not dumb. They're quite smart. And without a full grasp of, uh, you know, the rich language of scripture and Christian faith, one is at a complete loss to be able to respond to them in any sort of uh, you know, substantive way. At the end of the day, you may not convince them, just like they may not convince you, but at least you're uh, not bowled over by their sheer intellectual prowess because you don't know the first thing about X, Y, or Z. I mean, be like me going in and trying to have a conversation with Richard Dawkins when I have, a, at best, a rudimentary knowledge of, of, of a Darwin's Origin of Species, mainly that I know you wrote it, and that's about it. You know, So the uh, it really isn't an, an issue and not only an issue there with someone who says is, is not a member of a faith community or what or religious in some way but also within the religious community there are people who are uh, you know uh, hucksters and shysters who take our money and want to take our money and want to give us false promises and whatnot that are not uh, that are no better in terms of their predication on a, on a broad and rich language of scripture. So I do think you're right that we we have a problem of kind of widespread infantilization of um, Christians uh, about their sacred text. This is supposed to be their holy book. This is supposed to be the one thing that they treasure above all others. And what you've got are, are you know, six and seven-year-olds and 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old bodies. And, of course, then when there comes to be a debate on Facebook, they don't have the foggiest. And they can't even begin to engage it in any substantive way. So it's, a, it's very tragic in my mind. Yeah, and going back to the new atheist for a moment, while a lot of Christians would say, well, I'm not going to follow Richard Dawkins. I have no intent of going down that path. 
so I'm not really susceptible to it. I think the, the one risk, though, is that we assume that we're starting from the same place in terms of our understanding of the depiction of the God of the Old Testament. And so, so you end up trying to refute the, the, the Dawkins portrait of God without asking whether he's even portrayed God correctly from the Old Testament itself. Right. Right. And we should add that Dawkins gets some things about that portrait right. It's not that he gets every piece wrong, and that's that's part of the nature of a pidgin language. It retains lexical stock from the pre-existing languages. And also what's troubling about well, Dawkins' portrait of God is that it's actually a portrait that many Christians would hold about the Old Testament. And they drive this strong wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament that everything in the Old Testament is kind of bad. God was like woke up on the wrong side of the bed for millennia. But then, you know, thank goodness, one day Jesus came and, and God got up on the other side of the bed. <laughs> everything was fine after that. And, and that's actually a, a deeply problematic yeah. thing. That's It's a legacy of Christianity running back at least to the second century. Yeah, I remember having a student say to me that she runs from the, she runs to Jesus from the God of the Old Testament, you know, and, and I think, I think that that sort of uh, re- reflects that, that kind of popular understanding that, that is, that does have a basis in the text itself, you know, so, so there are texts in the Old Testament that, that Dawkins points to that are rightly troubling. Yeah, you know, for so, sure. so so but of course your um, students what your student when she when she gets to Jesus what she finds is that Jesus takes her in prayer back to the God of Israel yeah. in the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So so that that links then to the the so you had sort of three antagonists in your book. You had the 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 new atheist like Richard Dawkins, you had the Neo Marcionite and then you have the, the happyologist, someone like Joel Osteen. So let's let's talk for a moment about the neo-Marcionites. So for those who aren't familiar with Marcion, how could you just explain who he was and the threat he posed, and then how you see see it rearing its head in the church now? Yeah, so he's kind of a famous arch heretic of the uh, early church, second century, and uh, basically, you know, for our purposes here, it's enough to say that Marcion pressed the problem of the relationship of the Testaments in a pronounced way very early in the church's history. He basically uh, is the architect of this God of uh, Old Testament equals God of wrath and God of New Testament equals God of love and Jesus. And, uh, you know, his primary work, one of his primary works was the antitheses, which in fact just set texts against each other that he thought were antithetical, uh, just verses at a time or snippets, um, and one from the Old Testament that was bad and one from the New Testament that was good that somehow trumped it. And he couldn't deal with this uh, contradiction um, in his mind. What was the contradiction in his mind? Was incapable of assessing it, the complexity of the tradition. Um, And so he basically wanted to throw the Old Testament out, and he did so. And uh, what he also did, rather tellingly, is he also had to throw out a good bit of the New Testament because so much of the New Testament depends on the Old Testament. So he got rid of... uh, all the Gospels except Luke, and only had a reduced version of Luke. He had to get rid of some of the letters of Paul, and even the parts he retained, he, he edited so as to limit the Old Testament influence and text therein. So he, he pressed this issue rather um, pointedly and evidently successfully. His, his churches lasted for several centuries. He was well known as a great preacher. He encouraged Bible study. 
And if you think about it, what he was doing, therefore, is uh, in light of his whole system, was uh, sheep stealing, as it were, you know, the old phrase. He was, he was taking from the other Christian churches converts for his own cause. It wasn't like he was converting new people who were unfamiliar with Christianity to his cause, because his, his cause was entirely dependent, derivative of the, of the mother church. So he, he pressed that problem, and the church roundly refuted him and, and decried uh, him as a heretic. Uh, but his that that legacy lives with us. I mean, I can I encounter it. I mean, almost on a weekly basis, one way or the other, with with students or people at the at the uh, you know store or when they find out what I do or or whatever. Church people. Yeah, yeah. I, I've uh, told the story before of the time I was applying for a passport. No, I was applying for my visa to come to the UK, and I phoned up the visa office in Philadelphia, and the guy heard that I was going to teach Old Testament, and, and he just went into this tirade. He was, it was a sort of friendly tirade, and he, he just goes, bloodshed, violence, wrath. He just listed off all these attributes of God from the Old Testament. Yes. He's like, better you than me, brother. <laughs> right, right. And the thing is, is you can't get around the bloodshed, wrath, and all this sort of thing. But the, but the issue is, of course, it lives in the New Testament, too. And therefore, the problem of God's wrath or God's judgment is a thoroughly biblical problem that has to be addressed as such, not pawned off as if it's an Old Testament problem versus a New Testament problem. And also, of course, love and mercy and kindness. Oh, these abound in the Old Testament just as much as they do in the New Testament. Yeah. So the, the, the problem of knowledge, testamental knowledge, again, this is just another further proof of the, of the endangered status of biblical knowledge. And really not just knowledge. I mean, I'm not interested in literacy, who came first, Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where did this verse, you know, what kind of grapes did they get from, you know, whatever. I mean, who cares really about Bible trivia? I'm talking about this grammar to be able to see, construct, understand, perceive, and negotiate one's life in the world. So I'm not interested in does, does anybody remember what the name of the valley of Eshkol is, you know, but, but rather when they think about the problem of immigration, which is a big one in our world right now, and especially in America at the moment, do they think first and foremost as Christians of texts in the Bible that have to do with immigration? That's what I think they should be doing, not recapitulating what their favorite pundit or political party says, but rather wrestling with what it means for Ruth to be a Moabite widow immigrant. Or what does it mean to Leviticus to care for the immigrant and provide food for them and love them like you love yourself? Yeah, That's the kind of grammar I'm interested in. Yeah, I, I recently saw someone uh, tweet something that said, Jesus' ethic of love for enemies has absolutely no precedent anywhere in world history. <laughs> it's completely new. So he, he yeah. sort of... In, made the point emphatically, and this is a very well-known preacher. And and I, I was just thinking, oh my goodness, this this is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Maybe not of in course. a sort of stereotypical read of the Old Testament, but yeah. but but this is this language even comes right out of the Old Testament. So, That's right, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. I, and I think touching on the Neo Marcion idea, I think you put your finger on something really important in, in terms of the, the problem that 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 Marcion had with the, the Old Testament and the Bible being one of an inability to deal with its complexity. 
and its its nuance. So you, you said this on page 106. You, you talk about how for Marcion, quote, the Christian gospel was completely a gospel of love to the absolute exclusion of law. So this, of course, led him to associate the gospel love with Jesus and the, the law with the kind of alien God of the Old Testament. Um, but I, I think that basic instinct is alive and well, and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of ruthless perfection of the idea of love. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that it, well, first of all, it excludes any any notion of judgment, but it but it applies the sort of standard of consistency that the Bible itself can't handle, um, yeah, or that isn't right. appropriate to the, the the material itself. And I that's just wondered right. um, how how you how you respond then when students say to you something to the effect of we ought to take a Christocentric approach approach to the Bible and read the whole Bible through the lens of Jesus' ethic of love for enemies. And and from that point, then, it leads to a kind of casting judgment on the God of the Old Testament at, at various points, let's not say the whole thing, for mm-hmm. failing to meet that standard time and time again. So so mm-hmm. what what are mm-hmm. your kind of responses to someone who would, who would take that kind of hermeneutic of Christocentric Love for enemies is the lens through which you read the whole Bible, and then using that as a point for judgment. Yeah, great questions. I mean, I, th- I think the first thing I would say is that the, you know, the, the problem that Marcion reflects there is a is a language interference problem. He's got a superstrate and a substrate, and in the process of pigeonization, because um, he only has a pigeon Old Testament that he can't deal with. He's only got the bad Old Testament, he doesn't have the good Old Testament. The pro- there's some sort of uh, analytic, right, that's come in and and chopped it all up for him. And that's the super straight language that's dominant over the substrate. So the superstrate triumphs, the substrate suffers. The substrate's the Old Testament. It, it suffers in the process. The superstrate is something else. It's his it's his sense of logical consistency. Maybe it's from the philosophers. Uh, it's not entirely clear. But it's the exact same kind of uh, language interference and superstrate imposition that you find in the New Atheists. It's exactly the same. That they are obsessed with consistency. They're obsessed with a kind of scientific rationality that just doesn't work for any literature or at, at all. I mean, like, you know, outside of the test tubes, none of that works, including just the complexity of living a life whether you're religious or not yeah. you know so it's just kind of asinine and, and ignorant at, at some sort of you know fundamental level in my humble opinion <laughs> but but in terms of this other analytic you're saying let's let's bring in Jesus and whatnot I mean people do this all the time and yeah. you know I think they mean well by it but the problem I see is twofold one is that it seems to me it's in a, in a way a Marcionite move uh, because um, again, it, it pairs things away, um, and it's dependent upon. It's dependent on this sort of. It well, it begs the question in the technical way because what is this Christ ethic, and how yeah. do we know of it? Yeah. And we only know of it from the text, but these texts are in fact difficult texts. They're not propositional. They are are set within parables and poems and stories and miracle accounts and birth reports and so forth. So it's hardly transparent always uh, what that ethic is. And and, uh, Jesus himself could be critiqued about some of this stuff with the way he interacts with the Canaanite woman, for instance, uh, in Matthew, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark. Uh, So is Jesus fall short of his own ethic? You know, does he have to have this 
quote unquote foreign woman call him to account for it? Does she know it better than he does? You know. Um, so again, it's it's to me, it's it sounds nice. I, I had a student who also say this to me. He said, "Well, you know, Jesus is nonviolent." You know, and I said, "But what about you know Jesus and his words about judgment and you know cutting the branches off and throwing them into the fire? It's not really particularly nice, you know." Um, and the not coming to bring peace, but a sword, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then he sort of says, oh, well, I don't, I guess you're right about that. But what I mean is, you know, yeah. <laughs> and so it's just, and he, he kept reducing it, reducing it, reducing it till finally it was the cross. Hey, I'm not going to get in the way of the cross. That's a very important thing. But, yeah. but I think the, the other problem I would identify is that it, it drives a wedge, not only between the testaments, but, and, and introduces a kind of extra textual, tool that is not entirely obvious, but it also is problematic in terms of orthodox Trinitarianism in a, in a real profound way. So uh, I think that a better way to go about these things is not to trump up the second member to the expense of the other members um, or to the expense of the testaments themselves, but rather to think in a robust way about the Trinity and a robust way about ecclesiology that the church and the people of Israel are uh, united now um, as the people of God. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, and I think one of the challenges to what, the appeal of Marcionism is that it, at a, at a quick glance, it looks, it looks quite right. Uh, yeah. and, and by that, I don't mean when people, when someone would come along and, and say, let's get rid of the Old Testament. I think most Christians would balk at that idea. But when someone says something like, the whole Bible points to Jesus, or we need to read the Bible through the lens of, of the cross, or the ethic of love your enemies, how, you know, to respond to that with, no, I don't think we should do that, just seems unchristian. <laughs> yeah, that's people, right. right? Like, that's right. what, that's you're right. saying, like, to not place the cross at the center? Like, so, right. so I, th I think... Right. Marcionism in in those forms has a real appeal because it, it just sounds intuitively right. Uh, and right. Whereas to say that we need to retain an important place for the imprecatory psalms, that does not sound right. Yeah, right. You're exactly right. But that's because what sounds right in Marcion sounds right to most people because they, they lack sufficient nuance and uh, capacity to make fine distinctions. Um, and and that's because we most of us are are only trafficking in a in a reduced idiolect of the language. And I, I mean, I'm going to put myself in the same category. I don't claim full fluency. I think fluency is a lifetime project in any language, especially complicated languages. It takes a lifetime to master them. So I don't claim any sort of superiority in this regard. But I do I do think I can identify more simplistic understandings. And so when Marcion sounds so right, it's because we have been raised some of us, or if not raised, at least familiar with Joshua equals, you know, war. But very few people are raised with Isaiah 54 in their brains, uh, because that's highly complicated and beautiful poetry. Uh, and that talks about God promising to never get mad with Israel ever again, just like God promises to never flood the world again. I mean, it's a stunning statement. And I mean, why doesn't every Christian know that and latch onto that? It's because that's poetry. That's high art. That's, that's complicated. That's like, that's more than just the first language class or beyond just the fourth grade, you know, Sunday school class. That's, that's high art, high poetry. It requires more 
uh, linguistic competence to assess and understand and to memorize. So you're right that it, it sounds intuitively correct, but it's because it's so simplified, and that's that's the nature of the pigeon. But if you want to talk about complicated matters, the pigeon just won't do. So when you really have to suddenly get into oh, the fact that, say, oh, in Luke, for instance, Jesus has got a whole lot to say about God's wrath and judgment. You just are, it's the end of the story. They don't know what, no one can, can't say anything beyond that because all they know is that Jesus is a nice guy. So that's, that's got to be either censored or, you know, just um, repressed. And um, you got, you got several different problems going on after that. Yeah. What was the role of Old Testament amnesia in the rise of the Third Reich? This is something I found really interesting in your study. Yeah, so I, I in the book, I move from the kind of anti-Old Testament sentiments and rhetoric that you find in the New Atheist, which is, I think, at times borderline anti-Semitic, or it could be read that way at least, uh, and, and find its resonance in... Um, not in things that Marcion said much, much earlier in the second century, but also with uh, Marcion's greatest biographer, uh, uh, Adolf von Harnack, who's arguably the greatest uh, church historian to ever live. Um, this, his range and uh, contributions are, are unmatched. And uh, his, favorite, his favorite subject was Marcion, he said. He wrote an undergraduate thesis paper on Marcion that won an award. But he didn't come back to finish a book on Marcion until the very end of his life. It was the last book he wrote. And he had it in a second edition as well. Uh, I think the first edition was 1914, if I remember right. And the second edition was 1917. And uh, Harnack not only wrote this brilliant biography of Marcion, but in the end of the book, he actually says that he thinks Marcion was right. And that it's time for the Christian church to, to take away all authority from the Old Testament. And it's just a remarkable, stunningly just horrific statement, especially made in Germany um, in the uh, war period. And it's he tried to, to, to distance himself from Marcion. Um, you know, from from these claims that he was Marcionite, but he just couldn't. I mean, it, yeah. it's just he protests too much. It's just the the what he said is just stunningly, again, troubling. And especially in this period, it just fits really hand in glove with the kind of anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic rhetoric that was widespread at the time, and uh, that people like um, Doris Bergen have showed was really a key aspect of the Nazi program and that the Nazi program was successful in part because it preyed heavily on what she calls biblical illiteracy um, and the systematic removal of the Old Testament from Christian worship, from sermons, from reading, and ultimately from hymnody. Uh, and then we're kind of back to where I started with my initial testing of the patient. If the Old Testament is no longer read in worship and preached in worship or sung about in worship, it's effectively dead, and Christians have no idea that they have any sort of relationship whatsoever to that material. And therefore, when the Jew, when the Nazis come for the Jews in the middle of the night, you know they look the other way and not particularly troubled by it. So it's it's a, I think there's a, a real kind of straight line from Marcion 
through the Holocaust. And so the problem of the Old Testament is one that's not just one that we think about for the second century with Marcion. It's, it's the 20th century Holocaust as well. And therefore, it has you know great significance, life and death significance, not only in terms of languages, but in terms of, of bodies. Well, let's move on from the Marcionites to the, the happyologists, as you describe them. Uh, this, this is the health and wealth crowd, uh, yes. the Joel, Joel Osteens of the world. Yes. So you've, def you've described happyology as a, a brand of a, a new Creole. Can you, can you talk about what you mean by that? And well, first of all, what you mean by happyology, and then also this new Creolization that you see yeah. happening there. Yeah. I use the term happyology from. Uh, Peterson's book on uh, a primer on on happiness with Oxford University Press. Peterson's a uh, uh, positive psychologist, and he just okay. uses that term to distinguish between the study of happiness and, and uh, subjective well-being, human flourishing from kind of Pollyannish, you know, uh, hedonism. Uh, that this is uh, the 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 sensitive and thorough discussion of positive psychology is about human flourishing. It's not about feeling, you know, warm and fuzzy all the time. And warm and fuzzy is, is happyology in his in his judgment. So I've used that to to talk yeah. about the, the prosperity gospel movement. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's not that I'm against people flourishing and, and being happy. Of course I am, but I am I'm against the kind of Pollyannish uh, promise too much that is at uh, odds with and in denial of the realities of life. So a, a Creole language, the, this is interesting linguistically, pigeons are these reduced dialects between uh, contact languages, but then a Creole is a, is a pigeon that grows up, um, a pigeon that acquires native speakers, and uh, those native speakers then have to, of necessity, expand the pigeon because the pigeon's too small to get around. Rus and Norsk is 200 words, but if it had ever, it did, it's dead now, but if it had ever acquired native speakers, then they would have had to expand the vocab because the language of Rus and Norsk was just for trading uh, in this, of lumber. So, you know, you'd have to come up with words for school and words for dating and words for extended family and words for, you know, apples and things like this. Uh, and so the, the pigeon would expand, and when the, when a, as pigeon expands sufficiently largely enough and then also has native speakers we call it a creole linguistically the creole has all this new material that's been infused into the pigeon and the new material is uh, expands the pigeon and it's also interestingly enough uh, fully regularized so if you make up a new verb in a creole you make a regular verb you don't want to make an irregular verb and so, you know, you and I are Skyping right now, and uh, we will Skype tomorrow, but we Skyped yesterday. Uh, that's a fully regular thing. We wouldn't say we, we scooped, we scooped uh, <laughs> yesterday, and we will scoop, you know, tomorrow. <laughs> we wouldn't do that because it's just who wants to make up an irregular verb, you know. So, so the Creoles are, have, have acquired native speakers of pigeons and then have expanded out, and they have all these new, new rules, new terms, et cetera. In John McWhorter's uh, terminology, Creole is a language starting over again, almost from scratch, not completely from scratch, but it's this is the way to see human language develop is you can find a Creole, you see what happens, and they just they just expand and, and start all over. 
I think, I think, <laughs> I think, I think that that's what's happening in the prosperity gospel movement. That what you've got is people who've acquired a pidgin language, a greatly reduced language. The, la the, the great reduction here is that the Bible is only about our personal health, wealth, and prosperity. And they've acquired that natively. And again, not completely inaccurately, because the Bible does have texts about these things. But then they've expanded it, made it into a creole, and have fully regularized all the, the words and the rules. So that if I say the X, God has to do that. That's a fully regular verb, you know. And, and again, the Bible doesn't say that God works that way, at least certainly not all the time. But God does work that way all the time in the creolized prosperity gospel. But that's because it's a creole. It's not because it's scriptural. And therefore, you've got a real problem with, with prosperity gospel teaching, if it isn't, if I'm right about it being a creole, because it's not just one step removed from the language of scripture. It's two steps removed. And it's a whole lot harder to get back to the original through, through a creole versus uh, through a pigeon. Hmm. So, so that was one of my follow-up questions then, not only to the, the happyology uh, an antagonists, but also to, to all three antagonists, mm. is how do you see that we need to climb back from where we are right now? Uh, or to use your, your metaphor, how, how do we relearn the language of the Old Testament, learn to speak that again, learn to sing it again, and so on? Yeah, well, I mean, the book has it, the 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 council of despair with those three antagonists is that these these all show the morbidity of the Old Testament in very large public arenas, including arenas outside the Christian faith, and also including huge arenas that are sold out um, or packed out every Sunday. <laughs> but but in each case, the problems that those three things manifest are redressed in some way by a fuller language and a fuller language and engagement with the full fuller language of scripture. So that's the great hope, but the challenge that you're putting your finger on is how to do that. And I guess that's the last part of the book where I make some recommended treatments about um, how to do that. And those those recommended treatments that I, I mentioned, I mentioned four positive ones and one sort of negative one. You know, they may they may disappoint some readers because I don't have a, you know, exactly how to, you know, um, and don't offer them a, uh, you know, curriculum to follow or something for their own personal lives or for their church or for school or something like that. But I nevertheless think that the suggestions there are uh, commonsensical on the one on the one hand, but also super important on the other. And that if if taken seriously, they would help uh, inculcate a, a more thorough, robust knowledge of, mm -hmm. of the of the language yeah i mean I, th I think that's an opportunity to really monetize the book is to offer uh, a curriculum <laughs> a teacher yes teacher's guides students guides children's books that's uh, right baby uh, board books just like yeah. baby board books i think this could just <laughs> maybe a journal and maybe actually a whole version of yeah. the bible the bible yeah. the old testament is dying bible right and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then a journal, and then yeah. one for women and teens and men yeah. and yeah. other people. people yeah, the, like... the, the Old Testament is dying <laughs> for toddlers. <laughs> exactly. This could happen, but this did happen with the prayer of Jabez. And yeah. so you're, yeah. you're, this is, hopefully that's not lost on all your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate the, the, the scope you give there because there, there isn't a kind of formula for learning the language and I, and I think in a way if if you're convinced and sufficiently 
catalyzed by the fact that the Old Testament is dying, then th- then that kind of opens up the the possibility of of regaining it. One one thing I did want to ask you about, uh, just because you were you're critical of the Old Testament, the the space given to the Old Testament in the common lectionary, not as a blanket statement. You do recognize that, hey, if you're doing the common lectionary and following it, at least that's better than no Old Testament. Right. Um, Do you, do you think that the lectionary just in a way hasn't served churches well in the end for Old Testament proficiency and that we should move towards just a sort of, hey, let's go with the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Approach. Yeah. I think I think uh, the the lectionary in terms of liturgical practice is like as you just said uh, far better than quote unquote preacher's choice where the preacher may tend to um, just hit the old faves all the time um, over and over again. So that the lectionary in its best case scenario does offer this sort of robust um, four course meal. Uh, on the Bible for a Christian congregation on Sunday through the course of three years. But now, I mean, we've got too many problems with that. I mean, now, you know, regular church attendance in the States is maybe once a month. That counts as regular church attendance. And pastors who I talk to, even if they like my ideas, just struggle with that. How can I build any fluency when people are only there once a month? Um, I think there's actually answers to that question, by the way, but, um, Oh, what are any? Well, (laughs) did you have to ask? No, (laughs) sorry to cut you off there, but I did. I'd like to know. Well, I think what they are is they're, they're not unlike the same problems that, uh, that, uh, TV, uh, writers encounter for TV shows. And what they do uh, nowadays is these amazingly deft previously on such and such, right? And in 30 seconds, sometimes less, they show you enough of the previous episode that you probably, even if you just finished binge watching it, you're like, oh my gosh, that is a 30 second summary of everything I needed to know from that previous episode. Why did I spend an hour watching it? And so some sort of, you know, deft, and it can be brief, summary of where you've been, um, can be remarkably effective. I mean, it's super effective, at least in the television media. And so I don't see why it couldn't be effective as well in the, uh, in, in an oral media like the sermon. But, you know, that, that's just one idea. I mean, there's other things, of course, but, um, but that's, that's, uh, that problem I don't think is insurmountable. And it certainly doesn't release uh, someone tasked with religious education from the task that they have, which is appropriate education in the, in the language of faith. But um, back to your your earlier question, um, and the lectionary is useful, very useful in this regard. But also, it's been it's been, you know, with with sporadic attendance, and then with sporadic use, especially if if, if uh, churches aren't using the psalm, for instance, a responsorial, or the pastors only, the preachers only picking one text, then it starts losing its nutritional value. It just becomes one course meal as opposed to four. So I think it's a great idea in theory, but in practice is the problem. So I think better than better than just your your faves all the time is the lecturing, but maybe even better, as you say, is a kind of lectio continua, where you're working on a whole book for a while, um, and then balancing those books, maybe taking turns, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, I mean, I'll say that that, that the lectionary. If the daily office is, I'll say personally, the daily office is an important, very important thing for me personally. And it's my primary language practice. Um, 
every day trying to follow as much as I can, follow the daily office in the uh, two-year uh, two cycle of the Episcopal Church that uh, has me reading through the entire Psalter once per month, and then um, in the two-year cycle reading not all, I don't think, not every passage in the New Testament, but I'll, but most of the New Testament and a good bit of the Old Testament. Again, lots of the Old Testament is not represented even in the two-year daily cycle. But that's a that's the most intense lectionary I've used is the daily office, and I think it's pretty good. And that kind of exposure is something I do even as a professional Bible scholar. Uh, I try to do every day. To continue to cultivate my fluency, including, I'll confess, my fluency in the New Testament, which isn't nearly as good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am an Old Testament. I think they pay me to read the Old Testament after all, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that the lectionary, in that sense, can be really good for personal personal devotion and personal language practice. But any linguist, any language teacher would tell you that you don't just need input, you need output. You need language practice and language practices. And so ultimately it's again, it's not a matter of Bible trivia, but but somehow being able to not just receive the Old Testament passively in say Christian worship or Christian education, but somehow to practice that uh, yourself as someone who is an adherent of this religion to use the Bible in substantive, formative, generative ways, not just sit there and appreciate, oh, that's a good sermon or that's a bad sermon. Yeah, it reminds me of something my brother-in-law does in his church, and th this is in Chicago, and they have, they have, they're, they're not really Bible studies. They they gather together, they read scripture, and then someone, the jo they they take turns going around and standing up and telling the story that they just read. And then the job of everyone in the room is to sort of like correct the telling. Yeah. And so so the speaker then, their their only task is to retell. And then they gain proficiency in, in retelling. And then the, the, the group of people there who have to sort of like put their Bibles down at that point, correct yeah. the retelling from memory. Yeah. And, and it also brings out sort of skill sets in people that normally wouldn't be picked to be the teacher in the class or something like that or have yeah. the brilliant insight. Uh, yeah, so I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It, and it makes me think a little bit of uh, some research that Christian Smith and has done and others with, with youth and primary indicators of whether youth will be religious later in life is uh, whether or not their parents care about religion and talk about religion. And they don't have to talk about it as experts. They just have to talk about it. <laughs> they just have to sort of talk about it and the child on a fairly regular basis so that the child knows that when the child grows up, if they're not religious, it's going to be an issue. It's kind of going to be an issue with mom and dad. But but parents, this research, at least in America, has demonstrated that despite what, what kids say, including at high school and college age, despite what they say, the most important indicator of their future religiosity is their parents. And if their parents are religious and if their parents talk about religion and if you never get a chance to talk about it um, or, or practice talking about it, you'll just feel like you can't, you shouldn't. And, and that means, again, at best, you'll have a passive language and probably in a language classroom, you would never remember it outside. As soon as French class is over, you know, and the semester's done, it's like, forget it, parlez vous, that's all I can remember, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard that one of the key indicators is the ability of parents to explain their religion to their kids and so that that sort of under transmission of 
and, and articulation of why this religion matters to their kids then uh, d- determines some of the future religiosity. Yeah, and again, we have patterns of this or examples of this in the Bible itself. So, you know, at the end of the book, I use Deuteronomy as a as a right. as a model for second language acquisition, and that book is obsessed with with communicating its its faith to the next generation. And Moses models this, and then actually tells parents to do the same. Yeah. Well, Brent, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, one last question I just want to ask because it's a sort of tradition with OnScript, and that is off the top, off topic. Okay. What is, although you might link it, what is one <laughs> idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, I think, okay, since we're on I the think, death theme. Yes, since we're on the death theme. I think one idea that needs to die is that the most important thing about the Bible is its historical cultural distance from us. And secondly, as my honorable mention, that the juice in Scripture lies in its filleting into innumerable redactional layers. Mm, mm. Uh, Those two uh, ideas, in my judgment, have had their day, and their day hasn't been particularly robust. (laughs) It's time for them to to be set aside as primary in the uh, marketplace of ideas. All right. Well, Thanks so much, Brent. It's it's good to hear some things do need to die and other things don't, <laughs> like the Old Testament. Well, I appreciate your time and uh, hope that maybe you'll join us again sometime. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's been great. Thanks. You've been listening to on script conversations on current biblical scholarship until next time visit us at our site onscript.study